morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Fathers, we come to your word as we do each Sunday morning. Father, may we see it coming from the mouth of a king who sits on a throne. And Father, may we submit to you, may we place ourselves, actively place ourselves underneath your authority as it's seen here in your word. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we continue through, our, our theme is a faith that's immovable, uh, a life firmly planted on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. As we get started here, though, let me encourage you parents uh, with lots of kids sitting around you with, with two quick thoughts. <clears throat> One is... Um, once you know this should be a gracious place, um, not condemning each other and parenting and, and so on and so forth and, and judging each other uh, ungraciously. Second thought is this, you should be quick to spank your kids, okay? So if, if they do not behave in a way in which they should behave, you will not disrupt us nor me. It'll bring great joy for me to watch you Walk your kid to the back, to the bathroom, and to give them a whooping. <clears throat> I'm glad you laughed. I meant that to be funny, but serious as well. If we hear crying, that's okay as well. While you're spanking them, that's fine. As we continue in Hebrews, uh, let me say one other thing. You're going to sit there. You're going to sit there and you're like, oh, I, I, I don't, I, and you're going to put up with a lot because you don't want to be disruptive to the people around you. That also reinforces a bad thing in your child. They're just going to just push the limits when you're better off just the first time. And if you haven't warned them yet, you can, when I get started here, you can look over to your child and you can warn them now. There will be no warning. This is your warning. And then you just take them and go. Okay? All right. I will say this too, one of my kids was debating with me right before coming up here on how long the sermon was going to be, <laughs> and how long he thought the sermon should be. Yeah, you could probably figure out which one it was too. I won't, I won't say his or her name, okay? His preferred pronoun is he. All right, <laughs> we should get to Hebrews. I can be serious. <laughs> the Jewish listeners, as Ben pointed out earlier, uh, the people listening are people who have a, a knowledge of the Word of God. They, they're not coming to this as new believers, if you will. I mean, new believers in the sense of new believers in Christ, but, but not, not new believers in God. And their fellow ethnic kinsmen... Other Jews were pressuring them to return to the law. But here's the key, and I'm going to press in on this today a little bit later. It wasn't to just return to the law. It was to return to the law as a means of justification. All right? That's a key distinction. So, for example, do this and make yourself right before God. Do this, fill in the blank, and make yourself right before God. Keep these laws, and you can be right before God. Don't eat the meat. 
sacrifice to idols, and you can be right before God. Make sure you leave the ox in the ditch to die on Sunday, because it's Sunday, and you can be right with God. Make sure you check that Sunday church service box. Do whatever the heck you want to the rest of the week, and you can still be right before God. Don't cuss, and you can be right before God. Feed the poor, and you can be right before God. Consider, that's what I want you to do here at the very beginning, is consider the thing you do the most that makes you feel right before God. What is that thing? Now, now remember, justification, as just to define it, justification is a, is a legal status. Basically this, it's just as if I've never sinned. It's the status of just as if I've never sinned. What a marvelous reality. What a marvelous thing that a sinner against an infinitely holy God could get the status of just as if I've never sinned. That's amazing. If that doesn't get you excited, then you should go back to bed. So what is it, or what are the things that make you feel most right before God, that make you feel most just as if you've never sinned? Maybe it's pleasing your boss, making your kids happy, treating your husband like a child to keep him happy. Maybe it's acing that school test. It's probably the thing or two that you obsess over each day. It's probably the thing that comes to your mind without any provocation. Meaning without anything else spurring you to think that way, it's where your mind tends to go. When there are no other outside stimuli. It's the thing that you probably obsess over. That thing is your law. And if you can just meet that law, then you will feel just as if you've never sinned. A key phrase. If you keep that law, it will feel as if you've not sinned. Meaning, I will feel right with God. If we were pagans, we'd say, I'd feel right with the universe. If you get that thing or those things, I want you to have that in your head right now. Hopefully, if you're walking with Jesus and you don't have something like that in your head, then you're not really walking with Jesus. that, That thing that you turn to other than Christ If you're being sanctified, you'll know what that is. What is it? Or what are those things? If you've got that in your head right now, here's what Hebrew is, the book of Hebrews is doing for you and to you right now. He's saying, he's building the case that Jesus is superior to whatever that thing is. Whatever that is in your head, Jesus is is better. And really, as Russ and I were talking about on the podcast Cool Pizza this past week, or two weeks ago, it's not that he's just superior. It's really that Jesus is the only option. It's not just, I can get a little justified here, but, you know, superior justification comes through Jesus. It's justification through Jesus or no justification whatsoever, only the false feeling of justification, the cheap substitute. He's the only option. And when your faith is in the only option every moment of every day, then your faith will be immovable. But when you think that there is legitimately another option, to your eternal rightness before God. Your faith will shift like the wind in a valley. I think part of our problem is that we've been conditioned in our culture to have open minds. We should consider all the options. We should be open to this or be open to that, and if you're not, then you're a bigot. G.K. Chesterton said this, an open mind is really a mark of foolishness, like an open mouth is. Mouths and minds were, were made to shut. They were made to open only in order to shut. Listen, the only reason that our faith wavers 
is because we think that these other things are legitimate options to making us right before God. Let me give you an illustration. One late night, I was on my way to my parents' windy, going through these windy country roads. I get down, it's in the dark, I've got a trailer, 20 plus foot trailer behind me, family in tow, and I come across a road close sign. Now you know how this usually goes, right? The road close sign, you're like, oh man, of course I've been driving two hours. You know, the road has construction, but you know, you can carefully drive around the sign, right? Drive around the sign. It really just means they, don't, they just want less traffic, right? You know beyond that sign, you can still get through. It might just be a little bumpy. So you go ahead. Well, I went ahead and drove around the sign. Well, I get to the point of actual construction, and would you know, uh, there was a bridge completely out. There was no going across the road. There was no passing through. There was no driving through. It was dark. I had to back up my trailer on a windy country road in the dark just to turn around and go back the other way. What I thought was a legitimate option turned out to be nothing but a dead end. And that's how all of us likely spend every other 10 minutes of each day You see the sign that says, no justification here, no eternal redemption here, no lasting gladness here, and yet you put your foot to the gas pedal and you drive right around the sign, only to find out five minutes or five days or five months later that there really never was a way to get through. It was never passable in the first place. It was only headed towards a dead end. Well, Hebrews is like a huge road sign with flashing lights screaming to us, road closed ahead. Jesus is superior. The road really isn't passable in the first place. It never was passable. It never will be passable. You will find a cold, hard, dead end at the end. And then all along the way, while you're still waiting to discover the dead end, Your faith flaps in the wind as you drive around. Now, as we get to this specific passage, I want to ask this question, and kind of a little bit of a left turn here, but why angels? Why angels? Last week was all about the the final prophet, and apparently how Jesus is a radiator as well, the perfect priest, the mighty king. But this week, the comparison is between Jesus and angels. I think for us to understand the weight of this, very briefly, we need to understand why angels and have a a more biblical view of angels. I I think C.S. Lewis, at the beginning of Screwtape Letters, kind of describes what might be our predicament as well when we think about the comparison between Jesus and angels. C.S. Lewis is complaining in this quote about the artistic renderings of angels during his previous years and and leading up. He says this, the Italian painter Far Angelico's angels carry in their face and gesture the peace and authority of heaven. Later come the chubby infantile nudes of Raphael. Finally, the soft, slim, girlish, and conciliatory Angels of 19th century art, shaped so feminine that they avoid being sexual only by their total dullness. He goes on, they are a harmful symbol. In Scripture, the visitation of an angel, he says, is always alarming. Often, uh, most oftentimes, as the angel comes, he says, it begins by saying, fear not. However, the Victorian angel looks as if it were going to say, they're there. But the angels of God come and they're frightening. 
They're scared. They're scary. It's much like the picture that's being painted for us of Jesus today. The frail, slim, girlish, soft, flowing hair, never raise his voice or lift a hand, nice Jesus. One who couldn't sternly rebuke a sheep, an actual sheep, or fight off a wolf. Life depended on it. I'll just holler if it goes out again. The readers of Hebrews, listen, the readers who would have received this would have said, would have thought, oh my, an angel. I hope it's here to help me and not destroy me. What a dangerous and powerful creature. What an amazing being that always does what God desires him to do. So not only were they powerful, they would have been scary, but also they represent the giving of the old covenant, which is very pertinent here, both of these aspects, to understanding Hebrews 1. See, in Acts 7, verse 53, Luke says this, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So the angels represent this giving of the old covenant. They also represent the the great power of God. So it's another way, the Hebrews writer here, it's another way of emphasizing that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. That's why he turns to angels. The covenant mediated by angels versus the covenant mediated by Christ. Hebrews is taking just one more potential road to walk down and saying, don't. So with that, I have three main points. The first one is this. Christ is superior because Christ is the only Son of God. Christ is superior because Christ is the only Son of God. Hebrews 1, 4 through 5. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now it's crucial to understand context. Context is always key and we let scripture interpret scripture. What you need to understand is that the, authors of, the author of Hebrews is quoting parts of Psalm 2 at this point in the passage. Which means, as he's saying this phrase, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When he has that, he has Psalm 2 in his head. So when we read verse 5, we need to have Psalm 2 in our head. So let's do it in reverse. As we read Psalm 2, I want you to have Hebrews in your head for this moment, okay? For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Let's read Psalm 2. Listen to this context. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Look how God responds. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You see that? God sits in the heavens and laughs at evil people. First, just take a note of that. This is lost on us as Christians today. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then he goes on. That's the part that's quoted in Hebrews. Then he goes on, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and uh, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So that's the context. When he's comparing Jesus to angels, powerful angels, that's why it's important that we understand powerful angels. 
And he's comparing Christ to these angels. He has Psalm 2 in his head. You see, the title Son of God means that Christ inherits everything. And I'm going to tell you why in just a few. But first of all, his sonship, the title of son, means he inherits everything. Now, we have to understand inheritance a little more biblically. We tend to think of inheritance as some spoiled brat who gets everything that his father earned regardless of his fitness for that inheritance. Right? Think of the trust fund babies. That's what you think of, right? They got all the money, and then they go spoil or ruin it all. It's not the case in the context of this writing. The son who inherits is the son who faithfully carries on the legacy of his father. It's the one who carries on rightfully. That's why in Psalm 2, look at the progression in Psalm 2. You see in the first half, the father who sits in heaven and laughs at the kings who scoff at him. Then he begets a son and sets him on Zion, his holy hill. Then his son carries on his legacy where he's going to make them, he's going to subdue them. And then the son inherits the earth. It's his heritage. Fundamental, crucial, vital to Christ's inheritance is his obedience. Don't miss that. Fundamental to Christ's inheritance, to him getting the heritage, is his obedience. You see, the Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's a, it's a prophetic psalm that tells us that the Son of God will crush the evil of this earth and put things the way they should be put, the way things should be. He will make it right. And here we're told that it's the Son of God and no one else, not even the angels. The earth will rage against God. They will plot against God, but he laughs at them. And then he sends his son to break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then the son will inherit the nations and the ends of the earth. If Jesus doesn't get the title of son, then that means he doesn't inherit the earth. Now, I think it's important, and I might get a little nerdy on you for a second here, but does this mean that Jesus just now gets the title of Son of God? Does he just now become the Son of God? Is that what he's saying? He's now the Son of God. I think it's really important that we understand this in order to understand Hebrew. So you're going to have to put on your big boy pants and follow me for a second. Here's the big thought. I want you to write this down. In the resurrection, God puts an exclamation point at the end of Christ's sonship title. Let me say that again. In the resurrection, at the resurrection, God puts an exclamation point, or 10 if you're me in texting, at the end of the title Christ's sonship. This thought is very akin to Romans 1, verse 4. He says, speaking of Jesus, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Hebrews is referring to this moment. In the resurrection, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. But the sense of this, it's not he just began to be the Son of God. The sense is it means a declaring or a manifestation to the full. Right? So a, a fullness of expression. That's why I said it's like putting an exclamation point on something that's already a reality. He doesn't change, Jesus doesn't change essence. He has always been and will always be the Son of God. But the word 
power, I believe in Romans here, is modifying the phrase son of God and not the phrase declared. It's modifying son of God, meaning as if to say Jesus was declared the son of God in power. The son of God in power. You have that in your head. It's the full manifestation of his sonship. What he's saying, he's all that. And no angel can compare. Here's the point. He now, Jesus, has the power through his righteous life and redeeming death to inherit the earth. Let me say that again. The point of Romans and the point of Hebrews is that Jesus now has the power through his righteous life and his redeeming death to inherit the earth. Most fundamentally, how does he crush them into pieces like a potter's vessel? Through his righteous life and his redeeming death, he now has the power over all to inherit the earth. His righteousness enables him to inherit the earth. This is so key. That means that nothing, nothing you can dream up is that powerful. Nothing you think that's around that road close sign is going to be powerful enough to deal with your justification. Nothing around that road, no matter what you obsess over, doesn't matter how awesome you are at it, doesn't matter how many times you check that box, doesn't matter how many times you accomplish the law that you set, nothing, nothing is powerful enough to crush your sin and my sin and make us right before God. Jesus is the only one What he's saying here is that the road is not passable. Just stop, turn around, head back to Christ. And don't just head back to Christ, but go be a son in God's house. And that's where Hebrews turns to next. You see, Christ is not just the the powerful one, but he also builds then this house. He's going to, his righteous life gives him the right and the power to inherit the earth and the kingdom of God. Now he's going to build that kingdom, and that's where Hebrews turns to next. The angels are not going to build God's kingdom. Jesus is going to be. And that's where he gets into the second part of verse 5. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So whom has God said this to other than Jesus? Well, he's quoting from 2 Samuel 7. You'll have to go read 2 Samuel 7. I'm not going to take the time this morning. But in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, what you have is the prophet Nathan. And he is speaking to David. And in 2 Samuel 17, God's response, what he's responding to is King David has a godly desire to build a temple for the Lord. It's a good thing. David wants to do that. What happens is God promised David that he would always have an heir, that David would always have an heir, and that his son would build God's house. That's the promise. Well, that's what Hebrews is referring to, is that this son of David is the one building the house. That's Christ. He's building God's house. But, so what happens is Christ will inherit the earth by his obedient life and death and his victorious resurrection. Okay? Follow me. And then he will build the Lord's house. Let me read for you that verse 16 of 2 Samuel. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this house will be established forever. That road is the only road open, and it's open in that sense forever. This house 
will be forever. So let's put it all together, okay? So if you haven't, if, you, if, you, if I lost you in the middle of this, just, here's your summary statement, okay? God says, I will be to Jesus a father, and he shall be my son. And that son will inherit the world through his obedience, and then he will build my house, and this house will last forever. Hebrews is saying, those angels and that old covenant was great, but Christ is superior. Here's what he's saying. When you are staring at the road close sign, don't do it. Don't put your pedal, don't put your foot on the gas pedal unless you've got the car in reverse. What's your road just around that sign look like? What's that look like for you? That's the thing you need to repent of and turn around and walk back to Jesus. Christ is superior than that thing. Next, Christ is superior because Christ is the only one worthy of worship. He's the only one worthy of worship. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Again, I don't have time this morning. Go read Psalm 97, 7, and Deuteronomy 32, 43. That's where he's quoting from here. Psalm 97, 7, and Deuteronomy 32, 43. Here's the thing I want you to grab. The most powerful beings in the cosmos are commanded to worship Christ. The most powerful beings in the cosmos must worship Christ. Again, remember how powerful these angels are. They would, have, they would have compared them to Roman soldiers or the power of the Roman government, but stronger and more powerful than them. And God says, let all my angels worship him. Why? It's because he is the firstborn that he should be worshiped. Why? Again, why? Just keep asking the question, why? Why the firstborn? What's, what's that mean? Why, why, why the firstborn into the world? Why? Why? Because that gives him special status over all the created realm. That puts him first and in authority and high above all of creation. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce says this, all of creation is his heritage. What is a heritage? Again, we don't understand these kind of words these days because we just live for now. We don't think about yesterday, and we don't think about tomorrow. We just think about today. But what is a heritage? A heritage is something you build, you invest in, you cultivate, you curate, and then you hand it over to the next worthy inheritor. The investment of the world, the heritage of the world, the heritage of a people has been God's plan. And he has saved it, kept it, and sustained it for his faithful son to now come, break the bonds of evil, crush the serpent, and receive his inheritance that is his people and this earth. Amen? God's plan, working out redemption in order to give it as a gift to his worthy son. That's why he says, and let all God's angels worship him. These powerful beings must worship Christ. And yet we often turn to worship those things we deem most powerful in our lives. Maybe it's ourselves, maybe it's the government, our spouse, an employer and their paycheck. And the pressure then to live under the laws of those as justification rises. We feel the pressure. It's as if God is saying, all those things too must worship Christ. All those things too must worship Him because it's all His. 
Therefore, we should worship him too. And third point, Christ is superior because Christ is on the throne. Christ is superior because Christ is on the throne. As you're writing that down, I was listening to a kind of a, a talk that was a critique of modern evangelicalism, and, and I, think, I think he's right. I, I was listening to this as I was painting yesterday, <laughs> which I hate painting, by the way. Um, and he said, I, and he said I, I think one of the biggest failures in the modern church in the West is a lack of understanding, declaring, and living in light of the fact that Jesus is king. We like all these other things. Jesus died on the cross for me, which is obviously crucial. We like that Jesus was nice and fed the poor. We, we like those kind of things. But Jesus is king. And if he was not king, then he could not crush the serpent. So his kingship is fundamental to his saviorship. If he's not king... If he's not worthy to inherit the earth, then there can be no redemption. And then we as Christians have to learn to live in light of his kingship. That he is Lord. He's Lord over everything. Not just over the church and the four walls and how you and I think. He's Lord over the person next door to this building as well. He's Lord over the politicians and their lies as well. He's Lord over it all. He's King. Christ is superior because Christ is on the throne. Let's read verse 7 through 9. Of the angels, he says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, let's, this is picture. I know some of us have a terrible imagination, and I'm sorry your education didn't help you. But this picture here is incredible. This picture here is incredible. You have the angels carrying out the will of God with the swiftness of wind and the strength of fire. Now try to paint that as much as you can apart from Disney in your head, okay? With the strength of wind, the strength of fire, and the swiftness of wind. The angels are to the power and might is amazing. They strike fear into the hearts of men. He says, but they are servants of Christ who sits on the throne. That's the picture. That means the one on the throne is more powerful than any of this picture of these awesome and amazing angels. Now he's quoting, but of the son he says, he's quoting from Psalm 45. Now Psalm 45 is a wedding psalm. Not one that you're probably going to quote at someone's wedding, but it's the wedding of Jesus with his bride. That's the picture. It's depicting a royal bride as she appears to enter into marriage with the king. That's Psalm 45, right? So don't, don't just imagine, imagine your cute wedding in a barn on a hillside in a two-acre farm, okay? Like, royal bride about to be wedded to a king. Verse 13 all of, of Psalm 45. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. Imagine that bride. Verse 6 through 7. Of Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The picture here of Psalm 45 and Hebrews 1, 7 through 9 is the picture of Christ's royal groom.
anointing. So he's being anointed in this process of being wedded to his bride. And he tells us a few things about this throne that he's going to sit on, this king and his throne. The first thing he tells us is that this throne is forever. I'm not going to talk on that because I'm going to talk more about that next week. His throne is forever. So pause on that, hold it till next week. I'll spend the rest of the time on the other aspects of this throne. His throne is upright. His throne is upright. So this bride is going to be wedded to this groom, and his throne is upright. It's not just any old king. It's the king. And his scepter that he rules with is upright. Because of Jesus' righteousness, he is worthy to reign as God's son and thus able to save sinners. He's able to be that with his bride. He's able to be that for his bride. Indeed, he has to be that for his bride. But what is upright? Our world can't figure this out, and some of us are still scratching our heads. What is upright? Like literally, each day as you walk forth, do you think, is this thing upright? And I don't mean standing upright. Is this thing righteous? Is my thought righteous? Is that action righteous? Is my inaction righteous? Listen, the ruling ideology of our day is subjectivism. Not what's objective, but what's subjective. Meaning there is no objective moral authority. Now follow me with this, okay? I'm going to do a little bit of cultural thoughts here. It used to be, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. So what's upright for you can be upright for you, and what's upright for me is upright for me. Those days are passing away. Now, what's being rejected is that there is any sort of objective moral reality. That there's any measuring stick. And to appeal to a measuring stick is necessarily evil and wrong, abusive, oppressive, and so on. If one person imposes their moral authority over another, they're doing that simply to get what they want. They're doing that necessarily to get power. So listen, church, this is crucial. For us to say that Christ's throne is upright, what we're saying is that his throne and all the definitions around his throne, that his righteousness, the way he rules, is the objective moral standard. And what's happening in our world now is any appeal to any objective moral standard is going to be described as abusive, oppressive, hatred, domineering, and so on. Just let that sink in. But Spurgeon says this. Jesus is the lawful monarch of all things that exist. His rule is founded in right. Its law is right. Its result is right. Our king is no usurper or oppressor. His throne is upright. His measuring stick is the measuring stick. And there is a measuring stick. I understand, like, that. you have to say that today, too. You can't just say, this is the right measuring stick. You have to have the conversation first that there can be a measuring stick. Because right now the world is saying, there can be no measuring stick. And if you have a measuring stick, then you're a bully. But there's a measuring stick. And the only measuring stick is Jesus' measuring stick. His throne is upright. Now, part of what that also means for us is that that's a throne you and I can trust. That's a throne that no matter the circumstances, 
you and I can trust that throne because it will always rule, always, with justice and righteousness. It's that throne that you must stand on no matter the circumstances. Can you see how if your faith is in that throne, it could reach a measure of immovability? It would not be so shaky. And what if you came up to the road close sign and said, you know what, I, I can't be right with God around that, that, that road right there. I, I can't make it there. That won't make me right before God. But that throne on Zion, that holy hill where God has set his son, where he rules with an upright scepter, that's the place. And you run there as quickly as you can. He is no usurper of authority. I mean, he doesn't take other people's authority. It's his. If he's taking it, it's because it's his. If it appears he's taking it, it's his. And he is no oppressor. Because his rule is just. Next, this throne loves righteousness and hates wickedness. This throne is not just upright, but it loves its affections are for righteousness and its hatred is for wickedness. Listen to Spurgeon again. Christ Jesus is not neutral in the great context between right and wrong. As warmly as he loves the one, he abhors the other. And then he says, Spurgeon says this, ah, what qualifications for a sovereign? What qualifications for a sovereign? Meaning, my goodness, that a, that a sovereign would have those qualifications. And he says this last phrase, what grounds of confidence for his people? Like, do, do, you, do you trust that when you go to his throne, today when you're praying or in your head later while you're driving, that he's going to do nothing other than love righteousness and hate wickedness. He's not going to confuse the two. So the question I would ask us, I would ask you, do you love righteousness? Do you hate wickedness? And do you have a biblical definition for each of those? Are you building that definition? That should be an ever-growing definition. What is righteous? What is wicked? And the loving and the hating of those respectively. I think some of us have bought into this, this phrase or this kind of lifestyle that I'm going to summarize with this statement. Well, that's just the way I feel. Has anyone in here ever said that? That's just the way or thought that? That's just the way I feel. We all have done that, whether we've said it or not, we've lived that way. So here's what happens. Listen, we say or think that phrase as though it's the gavel dropping with a final judgment, no more debating allowed. No, no more deliberation, court adjourned. I just feel that way. And that plays itself out in how we feel about what is evil and how we feel about what is righteousness. I don't have time to dive into this deep. I wish I did, but... That's not virtue. That's not virtuous. St. Augustine says this, quoting from uh, reading through the book, The Abolition of Man, right, by, right now by C.S. Lewis. But in there, he quotes St. Augustine saying that virtue is the ordinate condition of the affections in which every object is accorded the kind of degree of love which is appropriate to it. You see, your feels, quote unquote, my feels, have to respond to an objective reality. They can be, our feelings can be congruent with reality or incongruent with reality. So if I love something that is evil or even moderately evil, then, then I am incongruent C.S. Lewis, I found this quite amazing. C.S. Lewis in the book, The Abolition of Man, says, uh, basically, 
I really don't like the society of young children, which is hilarious. I mean, he wrote one of the most astounding children's literature of all time. And he says in that book, I don't really like little kids. And I'm like, yeah, I understand you, bro. God gave me five. And then he says this, but I'm sinning in having that. Why? Because the objective standard, the uprightness, the upright scepter, says that kids are a blessing, which means I should love them. I should enjoy the society of young children. So C.S. Lewis is saying, my feelings towards young children are not congruent with objective reality, meaning my feelings towards this are wrong. I don't care if you just feel that way. They're wrong. C.S. Lewis is saying, my feelings that way are wrong. There is a right way to feel about certain things. There is a right, there is a love that must be in place for righteousness and a hatred that must be in place for wickedness. And both are needful to complete a righteous character. Both. And what he's telling us here in Hebrews is Jesus had both. Jesus always only loves righteousness with the right amount of love, and he only always hates wickedness with the right amount of hatred. Back to Spurgeon. As warmly as he loves the one, he abhors the other. Listen, do you, do you, let's, 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 let's take off the gloves for a second and stop playing patty cake. Do you want to know why we go around the sign? It's because we love wickedness and we hate righteousness in that moment. That's why we go around the sign. We'd rather feel good for the moment in the fleeting pleasure of wickedness than the eternal comfort that comes from the peace of righteousness. Let me say that again. In that moment, or those moments, we would rather feel the fleeting pleasure of wickedness as it makes us feel right, makes us feel good, it makes us feel okay with the world and with God. We'd rather have that than the eternal comfort that comes only from the peace of righteousness. Remember, this throne, this upright scepter, defines for us what is righteous and what is wicked. And Jesus fulfills that. And he loves what is right and he hates what is wicked. So let's talk about that rule of law for a few moments here. That rule of law, the upright scepter. Let's talk about that. Keller, in his book on Galatians, uses this phrase I think is helpful. We are saved from the law, for the law. Saved from the law, for the law. Most of us in here have really gotten down the first part of that phrase, I've been saved from the law. We got that one, especially if you came from a legalistic background. I got that one. Check. Got it. But there's the second part of that phrase, for the law. So some of us got down the, like, I've been saved from the law, and then any pressure to adhere to the law to us feels necessarily evil. That's not the point of Hebrews here. The point was that they were being pressured to return to the law as their means for justification. That's the problem. That modifying phrase is crucial. They're being pressured to return to the law to save themselves. But to love, in order for us to learn to love righteousness and hate wickedness, means to some measure we need the law. The law helps us understand. God's laws help us understand what, right, what loving righteousness looks like and what hating wickedness looks like. 
And to what extent we should hate these. When you go and you read the Old Testament, you get into like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you're like, wow, they've got a lot of laws about this particular sin. Why are they doing that? Because he's saying, you should really hate this one. They're saying, you gotta, don't get this close to the sin. You've got to stay way over here. Why? Because that's one you should really hate. Stay far away. He's helping us understand. How to hate what is wicked and love what is righteous. Again, some of us, many of us, grew up in legalistic churches. We oftentimes believe that anything that feels like religious law is somehow legalistic intrinsically. And what's crazy, though, is that you've went down the road close sign thinking that if you can just stay far away from those churchy rules, that's the key to being right before God. But what have you just done in that moment? You just created a different law. You just, cre- you just made a different law. It just doesn't look like the law of, the, the, of your ancestors. Listen, everyone has their own definition of what is right and what is wicked. And you live by that. That's your law. So legalism is not living by a law. Legalism is using the law to earn your rightness before God when only Jesus can do that. That's legalism. Listen, you could check all the boxes of religious laws and be a legalist. And you could avoid all the boxes of religious laws and still be a legalist. Instead, you've been saved from the law as a means of justification. And Hebrews is saying, don't go back. And you've been saved for the law, meaning now you get to live in light of the law, free from proving yourself through a way that is impossible for you and for me. And when you live in the freedom of righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, listen, you have to understand, again, we have to pull this thread through this. Jesus was not able to inherit the earth unless he lived the righteous life. He lives the righteous life, he inherits the earth. He has the power and the right to inherit the earth. Now he's building his house. Now what does it say at the end of verse 9? Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see, this throne is anointed with the oil of gladness. This is my last point, but I'm going to walk you through this in these last few minutes. So this throne is upright. This throne loves righteousness, and this throne hates wickedness. And this throne is anointed with the oil of gladness. Understand this. Anointing with oil in the Eastern feasts that were in the context of this is what was done for a distinguished and special guest. A distinguished and special guest. Now what happens though? This is the, you got to follow the progression. What happens before the therefore? Or as Rusty would say, I can't remember, what's Rusty say? What's the therefore, therefore? There you go. So I'm going to change that. So what's before the therefore? There you go. What's before the therefore? Right? He said, in verse 9, he says, therefore, God your God has anointed you. Look right above. What's right above? What's right? Tell me, what's right above? The throne is what? Upright. The throne, he loves righteousness, and he hates wickedness, right? What is that? It's Jesus' righteousness. It's him earning our justification. It's him, the perfect, readied, and capable inheritor of the earth. And what happens to him? Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, dear son, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What's before the therefore? Our Lord's perfect life. That's what's before the therefore. His perfect rulership. 
his upright throne, his righteousness, his hating evil. Jesus earns it. And then God himself anoints the man, Christ Jesus, as he sits at the heavenly feasts. He anoints Jesus for his work with higher and fuller joy than any else can know. You understand that? You and I will never reach the height of joy that Jesus has. You see that? that he has, he's been anointed with a gladness beyond his companions. Jesus will always be the most joyful man of all creation for all of eternity. He will be that. You and I don't get that. He's the most joyful. Why? Because he's the one. He's the one that lived the righteous life. He's the one that deserved to inherit the earth. He's the one that deserves to sit on the throne. He's the one with the upright scepter. He's the one who never went around the road sign. He's the one that always sat at the feet of his father. He's the one that will be eternally joyful and superior to all of creation. But don't miss that phrase. With the oil of gladness beyond his companions. Do you know what that means? That Jesus has companions in his gladness. Jesus, the gladdest of all, has companions that get to partake in his gladness. Who's that? That's me. That's you. If your faith is in that king, then that joy is yours. You're his companion. I'm his companion. We're his companions. We're members of that kingdom, of sons and daughters in that household. And we reign and rule with him. We are blessed companions with the gladdest of the glad forever and ever. His joy and his righteousness are the blessings he gives to his royal bride. You see the picture painted for us in Hebrews. Listen, God's people should be the happiest people on earth. We should sit in heavens like God and laugh at evil. We should anxiously anticipate where evil is broken into pieces once and for all. When we are attacked, we should be able to laugh at our attackers. Our households should be like walking into an oil of gladness. Where you walk out and you smell like the oil of gladness because you've been in that household. An aroma that doesn't require a diffuser around your neck. Why? Because we have the righteousness of Jesus as our status before God that's called justification. And because we've been set free from the pressure of proving ourselves through the law, we're now free to walk in righteousness and the newness of life that is granted to us through Jesus Christ. I think Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, kind of puts this into a little bit of a, a helpful example. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 11, he goes on to talk about you should rejoice at this. I don't want to emphasize or hang out on the persecuted aspect of this, but notice the words, when you walk in righteousness, even though you're persecuted, you are blessed and you should rejoice. Why rejoice when you walk in righteousness? Be because 
it's a sign that you're a part of the inheritance. That's why. It means you're, you're in line with, you're walking in line with the upright scepter. It means that you are his royal bride. It means that you are one of his subjects. It means you're a part of his kingdom. And he will inherit the earth. And you're a part of that. That's why you should rejoice. Even in the face of persecution. That's why you should rejoice. He's saying you are a companion with Jesus. Who sits on a throne in heaven. And laughs at the scheming of evildoers. And Jesus greater than all the angels. The son of God has lived the perfect righteous life and has been granted the title Son of God in power as he defeated death in the resurrection. And he now has inherited all the earth and is building his house. And because of his obedience, he has been anointed with the oil of gladness. Now you, all his companions, go celebrate, for you have been anointed with the blood of of Jesus and his gladness. His righteousness is yours. His death is yours. And his resurrection and its power is yours. The oil of gladness is yours. But realize this, church, you will only experience. So you can have it in status, but you will only experience the joy of the oil of gladness when you walk in uprightness. Otherwise, you just, when we walk in wickedness, we throw water and squelch that fire. We just put the flame out. It doesn't change our status, but it changes the enjoyment and the experience of that oil of gladness. I leave you with this question. Why would you ever ever walk around that road sign when that Jesus who sits on that throne is really the only option. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your marvelous and infinite power and wisdom that your truth would sink deep into the crevices of the souls of the people in this church. Uh, that it would reign and rule in their lives. That they would stop, that I would stop turning, putting the, the foot on the gas pedal, going around the road sign, thinking, well, if I just do this, I'll be right with God. If I just do this, everything will be perfect and fine and great and and instead, find our assurance, our confidence, and our gladness as companions of the gladdest of the glad. And that his joy would be our joy. And that we, as those infinitely more joyful than the rest of the world, would walk knowing, loving, and obeying the gladdest of the glad, our Lord, King Jesus, and Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.